When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books Network. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, the host of the Critical Theory Channel. We're glad to have Professor Simon Critchley with us today. Simon needs no introduction. He is the Hans Yunus Professor of Philosophy at New School for Social Research. His work engages in many areas, continental philosophy, philosophy and literature, psychoanalysis, ethics, and political theory, among others. His most recent books include The Problem with Levinas, the ABC of Impossibility, The Faith of the Faithless, Experiments in Political the- Theology, and he has written on topics as diverse as David Bowie, religion, football, and suicide. Today, we'll be talking to him about his new book called Bald, 35 Philosophical Sketches published by Yale University Press. Simon, welcome to the show and thank you for making time for us. Thank you very much, Morteza. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's customary to ask our guests about uh, a little about their biography. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little about yourself, where you were born, where you grew up, and how you became interested in philosophy. I was born in, um, in Hertfordshire in England, about 30 miles north of London. And, uh, but my family were all from Liverpool. I was the only member of my family in wasn't born in Liverpool. Liverpool was always considered to be home. And there's a lot more to say about that. But um, so I grew up in the south of England, but thinking that the north was home. And there's a big cultural difference between the south and the north. And then, um, I don't know, I had a, uh, uh, I I wasn't a very good student at all. I left school with one O level in geography when I was 16. I went to a catering college because it was next door to the school that I was, uh, I was at. I was, I was a bad student, and I was playing in, in bands. I was, uh, you know, sure that I was going to be a pop star, and um, so it was just a matter of time until that happened in my, you know, youthful arrogance, and that didn't happen. And then uh, I had a very bad accident when I was about 18, and that's another long, long story, but it seemed to shift something in my um, way of looking at the world and myself. And I began to read um, obsessively. And then when I was about 20, I went back to what in the US would be a community college, like a local, a local college and uh, did some remedial qualifications. And then when I was about 21. Someone said to me, you should, apply to university, which I did. I was going to do literature because that was what I thought I was interested in, um, particularly modernist literature. And then I, when I was at 
university, University of Essex, I did a philosophy class as my fourth option in my first year. And it, you know, it blew me away. I was taught by this uh, brilliant man called Jay Bernstein, who I'm still a colleague of, strangely enough, after all these decades. And I decided that philosophy was more interesting than the study of literature, although literature is very dear to my heart. And so I then did philosophy and all my degrees were in philosophy, but I, um, I've always had a strange relationship to the discipline of philosophy. So I think of myself as a, a sort of a marginal figure, although I've always earned my crust uh, as a day job teaching philosophy in a philosophy department, which is where I am to this day at the New School for Social Research in New York. And I've been here for, I worked out last night, actually, I've been here for 18 years. And um, that's uh, quite a long period of time. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned Liverpool. We're going to talk about football in our conversation as well. And also literature, because I know it's very dear to your heart. And you do make a lot of references to Greek uh, plays and, and, and Shakespeare in your works as well. Yes. But uh, let us start with the, the book. Uh, this book is a collection of articles you wrote for New York Times over a period of a decade, I guess. So can you tell us how did this book come about? And I'm really interested in the title of the book, which is actually a testimony to your great sense of humor as well. And in the book, you recount this story, um, this joke that your dad used to recount. And then you yeah. go on to make the distinction between two meanings of bold. So I was, gonna, uh, I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that. I certainly can. I mean, the joke, which I'll, I'll tell you because my father has uh, very few favorite jokes. He used to tell them over and over again. And uh, the joke is, I never left my house as a child. My family was so poor that my mother couldn't afford to buy his clothes. When I was 10, my, brother bought, my mother bought me a hat so I could look out the window. And my dad used to love telling that joke. And there's another joke about Christ that he liked to tell. And he's full about laughing. And um, the, uh, the boldness in the book was um, you know it's both a, a you know it's a conceit it's both a reality I am I am bald and uh, I, I tell the story of uh, how I how I went bald in the book and there's you know there's that that's just funny in the sense in which people feel that uh, baldness is something that can be pointed out and um, in a way that is not the case with other physical attributes let's say and then I began to think about boldness as um, speaking boldly, speaking, um, speaking straightforwardly without, uh, without kind of academic comb-overs and um, uh, rhetorical toupees and wigs, but sticking your head, your naked, bald head out of the window and speaking and then seeing what happens. And I think it's, um, and it's that second sense which is, more, which is more important. So the book is... You know, in a sense, it's it's a record of how I've learned to stick my head out the window and think in public in a newspaper. And although this isn't really grasped in the same, maybe it is now, but it wasn't uh, when I before I came to New York. I mean, how important the New York Times is to people in the United States, particularly liberals, and uh, it's it's incredibly important kind of organ and. Um, we managed to get uh, a philosophy column in, uh, in the New York Times, which was on what they used to call the website, 
when back when websites were things that newspapers had, but the real action was in the newspaper, the print newspaper. And on the website, I began to work with this man, Peter Catapano, who remains a very close friend of mine. And we began this idea of trying to do a philosophy column. And um, it went through, you know, all sorts of permutations instead of trying things out. And then I'd write um, a few pieces a year, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. And then, you know, and then this went on for about 11 years. And um, I put them all together into a book and the book is called Bald. So the Bald is the, 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 the book is these 35 pieces I've written over 11 years on, on disparate themes, but I didn't, they're not journalistic in the sense in which that well, rather they're not, um, I'm not a political commentator and I'm not, uh, I have no special knowledge of economics or anything like that. I, I saw the pieces as ways of, of sort of getting away with experimental types of writing, writing on strange themes, looking at philosophical topics from a, you know, a kind of oblique angle. And then um, we were lucky enough to get an audience and also to get a lot of writers uh, involved in The Stone. And we had a, a lot of fun for a, a number of years. And um, it's, it's come to an end now, but it was great fun for as long as it lasted. Thank you. As you right to mention, there are a lot of interesting topics that you touch upon both in the book and, of course, during the last decade that you wrote for New York Times. And I'm uh, particularly interested in my uh, in the uh, in that famous article, "The Gospel According to Me," which is one of my favorite ones, and I guess one of the most famous ones. And that is where you 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 critique this whole idea of happiness or happiness industry or self help industry because you liken it to religion in a way without without a god, and it's it's this search for authenticity which has alienated people from one another. And I found it quite intriguing um, because I, I, my understanding of it was that it is creating a kind of a, a cult of individuality or individualism, which is making people, as you have rightly mentioned, more passive. So can you um, expand that point, please? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, well, the gospel, according to me, it's in a sense that it's about everybody is a me and uh, everyone's individual spiritual journey which they're meant to be on and uh, and how that often links together with um all sorts of things but you know a certain triumph of uh, triumph of the therapeutic as philip reef might have said uh, a kind of interest in spirituality but a spirituality which is not very demanding and very kind of soft in a way all pervasive and soft um and, uh, you know, it's, and it induces in my view, a kind of um, passive nihilism in the sense, and the, the term I borrow from Nietzsche, from some um, uh, posthumously published remarks by Nietzsche, where passive nihilism is what he calls, he calls it European Buddhism, which is the idea that, um, that having realized that everything means nothing, we, uh, we kind of embrace that nothing. We feel terrified by it, but we're kind of plunged into it. And we, in a world which is uh, chaotic and out of control and where there is no, where there is no God in that strong, say, you know, uh, Christian sense of a God or any of the three 
um, Abrahamic faiths, that sense of a God, we, uh, we focus on ourselves and try to make ourselves into a little island of peace and tranquility and calm. And the self-help industry is kind of fed off that. And the piece that, um, the piece that uh, I wrote, actually co-wrote it with, uh, with my ex-wife, Jameson Webster was, um, was, you know, we had this idea for a book called Against Buddhism that didn't really go anywhere because we didn't really have a good idea for it. But we were against this kind of weak, all-pervasive idea of spirituality, which we and I find selfish, self-serving, and induces feelings of intense moral superiority. Whereas the, I guess my attraction to... Um, the Abrahamic faiths, to call them that, and in particular Christianity, is the fact that we, you know, we begin with an idea of ourselves as broken and uh, lost, and everybody else is broken and lost and in, in need of forgiveness and uh, mercy and uh, with the capacity to repent. And in this new kind of gospel, according to me, that is, that is singularly absent. You're meant to be kind of uh, on it, all the time at your best being the best that you can be and it's um it's uh it's also a, an ideology which has had real effects on how people how people work how people think and all sorts of things it's a yeah so the the, the essay is a little slice of what was going to be a larger project which was abandoned it's a lot of fun though i like that idea of uh buddhism that you mentioned because uh re- it, it has the whole oriental spirituality has been turned into a market and 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 i love that phrase that you've used in your book which is and it's this sort of authenticity is an evacuation of history and uh, you go on and i think this has also been further intensified by the corporate lifestyle as well because we all work in big corporates and they have these mental health programs and they invite their employees, you know, to do yoga. And I read an article some time ago called New Liberal Yoga, which was fascinating. <laughs> and uh, you're going to make this distinction uh, about work and non-work in that, uh, in that article. So that's another interesting point that I'd like, to, um, uh, I'd like you to speak a little bit more about. What is work and non-work and how has this corporate culture blurred the line between the two? Yeah, well, I, I was um, at a certain point about, I guess this is a, was published in 2013. It must have been, you know, germinating in the previous few years. But I was um, going to, a, you know, uh, one time to business schools, particularly in the UK, to give talks and critical management studies conferences and things like this. And it was a very confusing world. But I began to read a lot about, about what they were up to. And... Um, one person I met who was at the University of London at the time was Peter Fleming, who wrote a really interesting book on, on work and in particular the way in which the informalization of work in the sense in which work used to be something that you didn't want to do. It was a curse. Labor is a curse. And um, labor is a curse. is a consequence of sin. And in paradise, we will not work. Right. That's that, that's the standard view. And so you work. You don't want to. You have to to make money in order to rest. And uh, that whole picture has fallen away in the last decades. And um, the workplace has become steadily informalized, you know, uh, where the distinction between work and non-work has, has uh, been systematically kind of 
broken down and uh, where work is seen to be the expression of who you are, expression of your, your authentic individuality rather than just something you do to make money. And that, um, and that's had you know, terrible effects. I think it's, it's led to, uh, you know, if, if, if you lose your job, say, it's not the fault of the company that has sacked you. Uh, it's your own fault because you weren't a good enough person. You weren't creative enough. Right? So there's also a link between work and non-work and the valorization of things like creativity, which is, um, which is also particularly nauseating in the idea of, young creatives as, as workers and w- workers as young creatives. And, and it's also, you know, and it's, um, and it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a worldview that invites uh, cynicism <laughs> to say the least. And it invites uh, that people just lie about what they do at work and what they think about their work and, and so on and so forth. So I think it's um, this, this ideology of authenticity pervades every aspect of our lives and in particular this would be a separate topic uh, our online lives you know our social media selves and that's uh, that's terrible and exhausting and draining <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you for the comments um it's just a rumination now but because we are all trapped in this kind of work ethics and this kind of lifestyle most of us at least Mm-hmm. And as you've rightly mentioned, it induces this cynicism or passivity. What is the way out of it? What is our responsibility as individuals? Is there any? Is it all dark and gloomy, or is there any possibility for 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 liberation? Let's say for true authenticity, where it can lead to action, because all these kind of new lifestyle is also part of the new way the economics is working with the new liberal economy. Right, I think you've got to it, it's you've got to really to turn this, you know, to turn this Titanic around is going to be really, really difficult. And I don't really necessarily believe in things like liberation. Um, I think you know there can be liberation through forms of uh, of activity like reading books and making them your own, or educating yourself and making that your own. That's a kind of liberty. But um, I'm cautious about the valorization of uh, freedom in the sense in which, um, you know, I think it was Matthew Arnold who said that uh, freedom is a, or liberty is a good horse to ride, but you've got to ride it somewhere. And um, so I'm maybe a bit too suspicious of of liberty. Can anything be done? I don't know. I think in, uh, I mean, my my view is that human beings are uh, fundamentally decent. That's, that's my, that's my choice. That's my faith, as it were. I think that human beings are fundamentally all right, and they're made wicked by the circumstances in which they find themselves. Those circumstances can really twist things and turn them into uh, creatures which they're not, but they'll, they'll, they'll force themselves to be in order to survive in a difficult situation. So I do believe in you know, decency, and I believe that in in small small groups in small scale uh, forms then you know you can you can manage forms of life which are less destructive and that used to that used to lead me um, in years gone past to be much closer to the anarchist tradition which is you know 
the great thing about the anarchist tradition is it's, it's a tradition of failure, uh, a tradition of, of great ideas which have just never been allowed to work because they've been crushed by the people with the guns and the sticks, usually. But the idea of anarchism as a small-scale uh, policy, not really a politics, a small-scale way of life, like a moral way of life, I do think such things are possible in certain conditions. Uh, I think it gets harder and harder, and uh, I think... Uh, but there's a tendency, I think if you let, I guess this, this, this sounds a bit romantic, but I think at least in 2020, I think, and maybe for bits of 2021, I was struck by, uh, I was struck by you know, numerous examples of human decency in relationship to the bad situation that we're in with, with COVID. And, uh, and when people weren't told what to do or were told something they didn't want or whatever it might be. There was all these examples of little, little forms of life erupting and people doing, uh, acting well with each other um, and behaving, behave, behaving well with each other. So that I believe in. I don't believe in any grand narratives of, uh, of liberation, um, in particular uh, Marxist versions of that, which have, I've been kind of uh, plagued with in my whole academic whole academic life, but that'd be a, a separate topic. I do think that human beings are basically all right and they find themselves in a rough situation and they need a bit of forgiveness and a bit of help. Thank you. Um, I think it's perfect segue to my next question, which is about the next article or then let's say the next, next sketch, which is uh, sketch number five, abandon nearly all hope. Okay. And uh, there you're very critical of this idea of, um, hope, or let's say the audacity of hope, which was a motto picked up by Barack Obama. And you call hope in this respect a moral cowardice, I'm just quoting from your article, a moral cowardice that allows us to escape reality. I'm a pessimist myself, so I love that chap, that, that sketch. So, and then there you also go on to make a distinction between this Christian idea of hope and the ancient Greek conception of hope, which is the one that you prefer. So tell us why you think hope is a in this sense, is moral cowardice that, that allows us to escape reality and then the distinction between Christian yeah, and mean, ancient Greek. It's the idea of a kind of blind hope, you know, the, the, which goes back to really to figures like St. Paul when he says that we have to hope, uh, we have to hope for what we do not see. Right? We have to hope uh, blindly, as it were, that if the trinity of christianity is faith love and hope and hope is in a sense hope for what we cannot see and what, what will uh what will suddenly never happen so that idea of an excessive uh dependence on hope i think um is uh you know is 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 mendacious and the way in which but that uh, at the religious level that's one thing at the political level i think it becomes even more egregious that I think I quote Napoleon, who said, you know, a leader is a dealer in hope. Um, and, you know, this is true. And so what I saw here in the United States with Barack Obama was the political mobilization of the religious idea of hope for political ends, which were, it turns out, I mean, incredibly cynical. It was using the, the legacy of that, the memory of that Christian rhetoric um, and, um, and, you know, allowing people to endure, uh, endure for longer than they should do the kind of 
torments to which they've grown accustomed. So, I mean, Nietzsche says uh, somewhere, I mean, the, the, this article is, is one of the very Nietzschean arguments in, in the Nietzschean articles in the book. And Nietzsche is uh, against Christianity, he's against uh, Platonism, and um, he's against against hope, but what he's in favour of is, is courage, courage in the face of reality. So I think that's a, quite an interesting suggestion, that if we get rid of this hope, which in Nietzsche's words uh, is the evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment by bringing, uh, by clinging to hope, one makes the suffering worse. So hope doesn't assuage suffering, hope extends suffering by prolonging our torment. In place of that, we could think about something like courage and um i think that would be a start now with the ancient greeks i mean the um i mean they had a different view of of hope that hope was and there's this fascinating story uh in thucydides in the the peloponnesian wars text where he talks about the the melians who were inhabitants of an island uh in the in the aegean and the Athenians turn up and there's this negotiation. It's called the Melian Dialogue. It's very famous. And the, the Athenians say, you know, we're, we're here. We've got, we've got the guns and the sticks. Submit or we will destroy you. And um, the Melian leaders try to prevaricate. They try to say, well, we need to talk about this some more. We need more negotiations. And uh, eventually... Uh, and then they say, well, uh, we can't agree to what you're saying because uh, we'll, and we can still hope for a better outcome. And then the Athenians say, well, you, you, if you believe in that prodigal hope, you will be destroyed, which is indeed what happens. They, they refuse to submit. They don't consult the people. The, the leaders don't consult the people and the millions are massacred. And the lesson of the story in many ways is that we, um, we need to understand and give up prodigal forms of hope and adopt a more modest, realistic attitude, which corresponds more closely to actually what human beings do in situations of, of crisis. So that the, the way in which hope is uh, mobilized, I think is fraudulent. And what I try to offer in the, um, in the article is, a, is an idea of thinking without hope, which is not, you know, negative or uh, bleak it's actually uh, cheerful and affirmative and realistic and um that's what i wish we could wish we could get to a kind of courageous hopelessness a courageous cheerful comical hopelessness would be at least a start right in my view and and that's your alternative which you call skeptical realism informed by history yeah I mean, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, that's a view which is. It's. It's. You know, I'm. I'm not the first to argue that. I mean, people like, um, let's say, David Hume, and many others have argued that in the past. That, I mean, philosophy can do a certain number of things. It can. It can. It can. Um, it's very good at detecting all sorts of errors and fallacies and arguments and so on and so forth. But once you've done that, once you've written your treatise on human nature, then the task becomes one of uh, the reading of literature, history, and politics. And those three things together can give you a, a, a more balanced sense of what might be possible. So I think the, the problem, many of the problems that we seem to um, 
endemically have as, as a species are bound up with forms of delusive hope. Um, the pandemic in relationship to that is actually quite interesting. You know, the way in which uh, positive and negative forms of hope have worked on both sides, uh, an overestimation in how much we should hope in science, and then an, an overestimation in how science can be wrong, right, with the anti-vaxxers. In a sense, I think what the, the pandemic showed us, I think, is how uh, how, mod- how modest, minimal, incremental science is, a, is, a, is, is a, a, an activity and how it can help, but we have to give up these huge grand narratives and uh, work much more steadily and carefully. Thank you. When I read that article, I was reminded by that wonderful book, which was written by the late uh, Lauren Berlin, Cruel Optimism. She was also very uh, critical of this idea of hope and optimism that is created. But anyway, that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think optimism is cruel. I think it's, um, I mean, pessimism is, is at least less cruel. You're not feeding people delusions which they're going to cling to against uh, and then have lead disappointed uh, lives defined by suffering you're giving them at least a, a more you know reasonable assessment of what's possible so to optimism and this is again where i'm much i'm, I'm, I'm close to nietzsche in in temperamentally um optimism is the is the problem and that's that's what we get ultimately from from Christianity and from Socrates, and that's what we have to really challenge. And so the ancient Greeks, to that extent, whether they existed or not, and they did, but the whether they existed or not, they can hold up a kind of um, a black mirror to ourselves, uh, which allows us to see things in a, in a in a clearer way, and we can move along. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the role of philosopher. That is. I guess that's always been argued for centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that's one of the sketches in your book as well. And you start by saying that the philosophers have usually been ridiculed for their disregard for worldliness. And I, I love that uh, comparison that you make between a lawyer and a philosopher in ancient Greece. So tell us about that. And then why? Well, what is the role of philosopher in 21st century? Well, I mean, that was that was the question that, you know, uh, I had to ponder. We had this idea for this series of philosophy column in the New York Times, and um, we were given the green light by uh, the, the person that ran opinion, and we thought, great, so how do we do it? How do we start? And so I, Peter thought I should write the first piece, so I thought about it. I thought about it long and hard. Because, you know, it should have been, you know, what is philosophy and what can it do and how can it lead you to a, a happy life and blah, blah, blah. But I thought, no, no, let's, let's take it a different way. Let's look at the figure of the philosopher um, and see, you know, where that can take us. And, and also at that time, um, by chance, uh, I was working with someone who uh, was was reading Plato's dialogue, The Theaetetus. And in this text the Theaetetus, there is this, what's called, um, what's it called? It's called a, a digression. That's right, a digression. Because they don't know what it is. It, it's not a digression, but it's, they call it a digression because it's not, the argument doesn't flow seamlessly. In this digression, uh, Socrates talks about the philosopher. And he says the philosopher is someone who, Thales being the first philosopher historically, Thales, 
um, falls into a ditch and the Thracian serving girl laughs at him. So philosophy begins with somebody falling into a ditch because they're looking at the stars and, and that being a source of, of comedy. So the philosopher is a kind of buffoon, a fool, um, an absent-minded comic figure, a bullshit artist, as Mel Brooks would have said in History of the World Part One. And this, this article got a lot of heat. I got a lot of heat for this, and it was really, really rough because the, the philosophical establishment uh, came after me, and um, it really was unpleasant. And thanks to my editor, he was able to kind of uh, forced me to kind of keep my head down and not look left or right, and we kept we kept moving on. But I was ready to give up on the basis of a response to that because the the idea there, and I wasn't making anything up. This was just this was Plato, right? So it's not exactly you know wildly radical. But the idea that the philosopher is a fool, kind of a buffoon, and um, and Socrates makes this distinction between the philosopher and the lawyer uh, based on this very simple idea that. A lawyer is someone who takes time. Sorry, sorry. A lawyer is someone who has no time and who you pay for their time. So you pay a lawyer by the minute or by by the hour. That's the way the law works. The philosopher, by contrast, is someone who takes their time, right? Who can't speak to the clock. And in the Athenian context, uh, which was a very litigious society, uh, people spoke to the clock. The clock was a water clock, a, a klepsudra. And, uh, and Socrates failed to speak to the clock. And as a consequence, he was tried, found guilty of impiety and was, um, and was killed by the city of Athens. So philosophy is also a dangerous activity. Philosophy's, philosophy is, a kind of, is folly, is, uh, is, is a taking of time, and it has consequences philosophy can can kill right and i think that's a, that's a that, that's an important point because uh, why this taking of time and this this folly this ability to invert uh, to subvert the um, the opinions of the day whatever they happen to be and whoever is in authority whoever happens to be in authority presents a real uh, a really dangerous threat to political power and that's why philosophers have often got into a good deal of trouble. So it's important to remember that. And also, I think it, you know, it's good to you know, get away from the idea of the philosopher as some kind of lofty, you know, noble intellect. The philosopher is a, yeah, um, a clown. And, uh, but clowns are really important, it turns out, because clowns, clowns tell you the truth. Yeah, and I guess in literature, it's always been the clowns who have uh, revealed the truth, the clowns and the fools. Exactly like King Lear or yeah. wherever it might be. It's the, it's, it's the clown that can tell the king the truth without being killed, although mm. Lear's fool is killed. But, yeah. And I love that motto, that philosophy kills. Um, I, I remember a few years ago, my friend and I, we were, we were students. There was this highly, highly prominent and famous American philosopher who was invited to give a series of lectures in our university. We went to the first two and we were uh, really disappointed because we felt that what he was talking about was simply uh, holding the status quo. And then we did a little bit of research and we realized that he was, uh, he was given the Presidential Medal of Honor or a similar medal in the United States. And we said, well, there you go. People like 
Cornell West are never really decorated by presidents because that philosophy kills. Uh, philosophers, yeah. as you have mentioned, rightly held in political establishments anger because they try to change the status, not change, they challenge the status quo. Yeah, yeah, yes. I mean, you that should be our obligation, not in a nasty way, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a I think in a, in a decent and uh, open-spirited way, in a spirit of you know actual debate. But um, yes, I think I mean Cornell West is a a wonderful example of a philosopher, and I think a lot of people were perplexed by the hostility which he had with regard to say Barack Obama. But it makes perfect sense, and um, but maybe Cornell will receive a presidential prize at some point. Who knows? Let's hope so. And uh, in your preface, the preface of the book, you also had this uh, wonderful sentence, philosophy is not a solitary act, it's a collective act, because it's tradition, it's been conducted in the academy or in the garden of Epicurus, as you mentioned, or Socrates, you know, just talk to people out there in the market. Um, so can you talk about that idea a bit? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, maybe there's the series of pieces in the book I'm proudest of. Um, maybe also because they were they were written together and in one place and they were kind of the last things that I wrote that are part of the book is a whole section called Athens in Pieces, which are a series of pieces that I wrote in Athens in 2019. And it was a, I had a really good run and uh, I was getting a lot out of um, my time in Athens and it was, uh, I met some fascinating people. Anyway, one thing that I got really interested in was, um, Plato's Academy and Aristotle's Lyceum and also these schools. What was going on in these schools? Um, so one view of philosophy, the standard view of philosophy, is that the philosopher is alone in their oven or their little room in the Netherlands like Descartes and is um, in a world that's being ravaged by, by war uh, with a kind of metaphysical basis, say the 30 years war. The philosopher retreats on their own and... Um, tries to work out a basis for, for certainty, for a basis for knowledge and uh, all the rest of it. And that's not wholly wrong, but it overlooks the way in which philosophical activity has often been a, a school activity, a group activity. And I'm very interested in, 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 those, um, in those schools because we, we know very little about them. That's, that's, that, that, that's, that's a main source of interest. There was an academy, we know that it, it was Plato's Academy, but we don't know how it worked. We don't know. One thing that I got fascinated with when I was in Athens was um, what was in the library of the academy. What what texts were available? What papyri? What uh, what astronomical instruments? What engineering knowledge was there? All of that, because these would have been certainly not necessarily Plato's Academy, but Aristotle's Lyceum would have been the best research university in the world at that time. Uh, because it was because the he had Macedonian money to buy everything, and so it was all there. So what did they have? What did they do? Um, did they charge fees? What forms of instruction were going on? And did you know these people, Plato and Aristotle, actually write any of this? Were they writers, or were they was this some kind of collective activity of editing? And. It, it, these are very uh, unstable questions and people that, you know, ancient philosophers and classicists often get quite irritated by this. But I've, you know, I know some people in, 
a couple of people in Athens who would insist that Plato wrote nothing, right? Of course not. Uh, he was involved, right? He was maybe these were dialogues that were being had, but they would have been written by somebody else, and they would have been read aloud to a group of people. So the idea of a, a solitary philosophy as something which is produced in solitude is, uh, I think, at the very least, limited. And also the idea of philosophy as something which is received in solitude. You know that you you it's 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 a one it, it's it's. Uh, a singular reader is also very limited. I think that interests me a lot, that the that philosophy as a group activity and how could we, uh, or could we think about that in relationship to educational institutions? There was a period of time, quite a long time ago now, where I was trying to think about institutional forms of thinking and what we could do with that and how we could think more in more flexible, interesting ways about institutions. Because I think we're rather limited we're, we're limited in mainly by the idea of the university uh, with all the connotations that has. And then, you know, it's it, like the private research institute and there's, there's a lot of other options that are available. We, but we suffer from a great institutional, a great impoverishment of inst- thinking about institutions and in particular how groups uh, of thinking people might, might work together. And it's a very interesting topic, I think. Thank you. Um, let's talk about the tragedy of uh, violence. That is a sketch. One of the sketches is a sketch 19, the theater of violence. And I think it's kind of relevant to what's going on in our society with the pandemic as well. And also the social movements such as Black Lives Matter, which we'll talk about probably. Um, you, you, you have a great definition for violence, that violence always has a history. It is not one, it is two. So can you expand that idea, please? Yeah, I mean, this is something I borrowed from um, um, a uh, historian, um, a cultural theorist called Robert Young, who I've always learned a lot from Robert's work. And um, he says that violence is a phenomenon that has a history. So violence is not a question of a single act, but it's always um, uh, it's always a question of a cycle of violence and counterviolence, if we want to understand understand the phenomenon. So the standard view, and you see this over and over again, uh, the standard ideological view is there's something like peace, right? There's something like peace in the world. And then there'll be people that resort to violence. And those people that resort to violence have to be condemned uh, because they've they've brought violence, they've destroyed uh, our peaceful world. And um, that's just wrong. And one example of that that I give in the... Uh, in the book um, on the cycle of revenge and then the piece on violence is, uh, is 9-11, which from a certain ideological perspective, say a kind of naive, uh, a naive American perspective, um, you know, things were going just fine. And then these crazy people flew these jets into uh, the World Trade Center. And if you read, as I did, you know, the statements of Osama bin Laden, which are, very interesting texts, very and very strange texts. I read them all, and it becomes clear that this wasn't an act of violence. This was an act of uh, counter-violence against the violence, which was um, the violence which the young Osama bin Laden had seen on the television in 1982 when the U.S. Navy and the Israelis were bombarding Beirut. Right? And, he, and so the young Osama saw on television 
missiles going into towers, in this case, the towers on the, the seafront of Beirut. And that gave him an idea, missiles into towers, missiles into towers. That would be a way to, so in a sense, to understand 9-11, you have to understand it in terms of a history of violence and counter-violence going all the way back. Iran would be another brilliant example of that. I mean, if you understand, you know, if we just, if we stop everything with the Iranian revolution and what happened immediately afterwards, then we, we're nowhere towards understanding you know, how all of that happened. We have to go back you know, hundreds of years. Well, at least we have to go back thoroughly over the last couple of centuries and the, uh, the, the way in which you know, the, the, the former colonial powers uh, intervened in that region with often disastrous effect for all sorts of material interests. So I think it becomes, it, it, it's, it's compelling because you see that history is, um, history is always violent. History is a cycle of violence and counter-violence which flows all the way back and we have to comprehend that. We have to uh, understand that. And the task of history, I think, is to, to get some sense of, uh, of how that history plays out. And that's um, something which, um, you know, uh, uh, let's say oppressor peoples, whoever they might be, and they'll be different in different places and have different skin pigmentation in different places, but oppressor peoples are, are usually wonderfully incurious about history because it's worked out quite well for them usually, and they're happy enough with the way things are. So in a sense, the task of, um, if you like, political opposition is a history lesson, always. And that's why for me, I think, I mean, philosophy is important, theatre and literature are important, but history is, is, is so important because it's, um, if, you can, if you can give people some possession of history, then you give them the means with which to examine their reality and possibly uh, change it. I feel strongly about that. And and your love of literature also shines through in this uh, sketch as well, which is where you talk about the history of Greek tragedy, which is a history of violence. And uh, you also mentioned that Greek tragedy provided a platform or let's say an avenue for, for the Greek to see how Again, that's the same thing you just mentioned about history, to see that, uh, to see the violence that they have created, uh, which was of their own doing. So can you explain that and also tell us if there is a modern equivalent for that tragedy and the modern equivalent that uh, we can see also the, the, the violence that we're incurring on other people? Yeah, I mean, the, the second question is hard. Uh, the first question is, yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, it's... Um, the history of tragedy, for reasons that are, are not are not evident, um, are not obvious rather, uh, is a history of violence. That the stories that were told in the Greek tragedies, in particular the obsession with the Trojan War, this is a history of violence. And this history of violence, which at one level is a victory, a victory of the Greeks over the Trojans, but at the same level a defeat of the Greeks, because with the victory over the Trojans, there's then a kind of massive decline in, in um, the power of the, uh, the Argives, the Achaeans, the people that we lastly call the Greeks. So in a sense that um, the, um, how I see something like Greek tragedy is that Greek tragedy is in this let's say an aesthetic form, it's a modern term, but an aesthetic form, or, which is able to um, distill, to recount and distill the history of violence from which 
that city emerged and to and to hold it in front of our eyes in in the form of uh, of myth right that's the other thing it's not as if we're greek tragedy isn't um isn't journalism it isn't you know it isn't um it isn't documentary it isn't cinema verite anything like that it is um this strange combination of actual history and and myth in in a stylized form which is able to present something of enormous power and um i think that um if there's a a modern equivalent to that you know you you could say that you know that was what uh, the novel was doing in the 18th and 19th centuries and bits of the 20th century but i think you'd have to say that you know um something like cinema uh, at its best is able to do that for us now it's the closest i can think of uh, maybe really good theater if you can find it but it's hard to find but cinema in the sense in which um i mean i'm a li- little bit of a you know a closet shakespearean so um you know um if we think about shakespeare's history plays they're they're, they're plays of this historical period between about 100 years between richard the second and richard the third interspersed with many, many Henrys. And um, Shakespeare recounts that history, but does it with a stylized, dramatic intensity. It's also about the formation of a kind of a national myth, right? Which is, which could be questioned, but the, um, but it's, it's that, it's, it's that, it's not as if the, the naked bald (laughs) truth is going to, is going to do the job. We need a, stylization we need things to be molded mannered um if you're if if reality is presented to you directly you often miss it which is why art is important because it gives us an indirect apprehension of the reality which in a sense we we can't face up to because it's too close and um when it comes to the Greek tra- tragedy, you, you you mentioned maybe perhaps one of the modern equivalents is uh, is sports stadiums, which is in terms of scale, which is which provides a rule based system of violence alongside skills and expertise. I think I can uh, use that sentence to talk about football, which is I know a dear topic to you as well, yes. and I hope it doesn't throw you off the handle to know that I used to be a big fan of Manchester United in my teenage year, the years. When, um, as, long as, the, as long as it's the past tense. Yeah, it, it is in the past, past 15, I guess, <laughs> even more. <laughs> when Sir Alex Ferguson was the coach uh, and, you know, they had Peter Schmeichel as a goalkeeper a long time ago, it was. Uh, there's this paragraph that I love to read from, your, from one of the sketches in the book. And then you can also talk about football, what football teaches us. Okay. So you say that soccer gives us a lived experience of community with fellow fans it provides a history for that experience and a robust feeling of identity place and belonging even when that belonging is virtual circulating through television screens and across social media networks being a liberal fan is also about a set of values solidarity compassion internationalism decency honor self-respect and respect for others even manchester united fans well sometimes (laughs) And you consider football or soccer to be a ritualistic religion to you with a lot of gods and legends. What can football tell us about being a human? Um, I think it's, uh, for me, the 
the, 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 the bottom line or the headline um, would be that you can't just feel good about football. Um, football is something which is where the experience of compromise, uh, how one is compromised by forces that are outside your control. You know, they would have been the forces of the, the fates in antiquity. Now it's the forces of the circulation of money, of vast amounts of capital, let's say, or, or political power. That the, You can't just feel good about football. Football is, is an experience which is torn between um, the form of the game, which uh, in the words of Marcelo Bielsa, the um, coach of Leeds now, I think he, did, he said football is a gesture at the service of beauty, which is a lovely phrase. I found these on YouTube clips in, in, in Spanish that uh, a student of mine helped me translate and uh, a gesture at the service of beauty. Yet, so the formal level is that at the material level, it's money and the circulation of money and often really and increasingly really dirty money. And, um, and I think you see, uh, you see fans torn between those, those two things um, day to day, week to week. So it's something you can't just feel good about. And football gives you a, a sense of um, belonging. It gives you a sense of uh, almost a tribal sense of, of who you are um, it gives you an, uh, it gives you a series of enemies, right? Which become symbolic enemies, not genuine enemies. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to kill Manchester United fans. Uh, I'm happy that they exist, and um, and I envy their success, particularly you know in the 19, 1990s and, and the aughts. Um, so it's a sense in which there's a there's a kind of healthy agonistic rivalry between different fan groups, which, which I find just interesting. So in a sense that uh, this is why I try and see football in terms of polytheism, whereas, um, you know, we're, we're, you know, our cultures in particular, the, you know, most of the people in the world, let's say, with the exception of uh, much of the population of China, um, you know, seem to officially sign up to one version of monotheism or the other. The monotheism, there's, there's one version of truth, there's one God, there's one set of things that you should do. Um, that's supplanted in most cases polytheism, the idea that there were local gods and those local gods had their rituals, their things that you were meant to do and not to do, and you had to honour them and serve them and revere them, but other people had other gods. And it was fine that other people had other gods. These are our gods and you've got your gods. Um and then you, you get you know, wonderful examples of, say, you know, ancient colonialism, you know, what the Greeks and the Romans and the rest of them did. They didn't extinguish um, religions when they encountered them. They, they, they incorporated elements of them. And you had these weird syncretic forms of religion. So local religions would be adopted, transformed into a new form of life. So polytheism. It's interesting because you can have you can say these are these are my gods these are my heroes you know Dalgleish whoever it might be the list of the list of gods is is list is named back to you know Paisley and Shankly and that's our founding myth and then you know twenty six miles down the road Manchester United fans have got their gods their myths their stories and we can both have those beliefs. Right, alongside each other without tearing each other to pieces. I think religion 
becomes really dangerous when it becomes universalistic um, and when it becomes exclusivistic, it becomes incredibly dangerous. So the idea that there is a universal God which speaks to one set of people rather than another set of people and the other set of people really are people that shouldn't be given, let alone rights, they should be given life, whatever. This is, this is a disaster. Religion for me is... Um, so my twisted way, my twisted, strange, idiosyncratic way, you know, I see football as a kind of living, you know, anthropological experiment um, or, or, or an experiment in the sociology of religion. In the spirit of someone like Durkheim, you know, when Durkheim was using all that research coming out of Australia in the 19th century. Um, and um, yeah, and you can, uh, and you can do amazing things with it. You can have rational discussion around football in a way in which you can't about much else uh people change their opinions around football you have incredibly strongly held views and then you'll see you'll, you'll receive an argument some evidence and you'll change your mind you can have a a wonderfully elaborate you know conversation about football with an, a nine-year-old um and uh, and learn a learn a great deal particularly about statistics and data and um and so on and so forth. So there's, so there's something wonderfully egalitarian about, about, about soccer as a, as a thing. I don't really see it as a sport. I see it more as a kind of a ritual activity, which, um, which large groups of people seem to be involved in. And its form is beautiful and its material basis is money uh, on the one hand, nationalism on the other, and they're both pretty ugly, but we take both. We take the beauty with the ugliness. And we're not dupes at that level. We're not. So football fans are not stupid. They're not ignorant of what's going on. They know what's going on. So I think football has a kind of extraordinary um, social intelligence. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think it should be taken more. And it is being taken more seriously. And it does. And it does. It does unite the world often by leaving the Americans out. And that's, that's kind of fun. You know, so it, it's, it's the one sport where Americans can feel like, you know, underdogs. <laughs> and that, that kind of amuses me. And um, yeah, although there's a lot of really good football in the US as well. Yeah, thank you. And, and I never thought about football that way. Thank you. Um, let me ask one final question. Sure. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic and signs of trouble grief, loss, and mortality have never been more visible in the past few decades, at least. And a lot of people have been uh, trying to console themselves, some by, you know, going to religion, some by going to literature, music. I know some friends of mine who, who were not really into philosophy, but they started reading books such as Consolation of Philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, what is the role of philosophy or philosopher in these trying times? Well, consolation in a way. I mean, it's a, you know, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy is a very important text and a very important continuously read text right, uh, in, the, in the West and in the East. Um, um, and it's, um, there is a consolation and a consolation based on, um, for me, the pandemic was, I mean, horrible and blah, 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 and all of that. But it was fantastic in the sense in which suddenly everybody was plunged into the same situation that I'm in and I've been encouraging people to be in 
my, all of my professional life and living with a kind of intense anxiety. And that anxiety, which can take the form of fear, fear of infection, fear of a new virus, which was real, but the underlying anxiety is a phenomenon which is really has to be taken seriously, not just diagnosed or, or dulled through intoxication and medication, but, but thought through and uh, used to enable you to kind of open up you know, open up your your mind, and I think so. The, the last piece in the book is a is a piece called I always forget what it's called because it came out under two titles. It was a uh, let's see, let me let me get this absolutely right because I don't want to screw it up. Oh, now I'm looking at the index. Our fear, our trembling, our strength. Our fear, our trembling, our strength. They ended up calling it to philosophize to learn how to die, which is fine. It was a better headline for them, but the the idea there was really that the taking this anxiety, taking this background anxiety and, and seeing it as, yeah, this is where I would think about liberation, right? I think in a sense, how you, how you shift, shifting the way in which anxiety is, is understood is a kind of liberation. This is not a disorder. This is not something that needs to be um, eradicated. This is what, human beings do that basic mood of anxiety is something that can open us up um, and and open us up to to other people as well and i do see that as the the role of philosophy i mean crudely that philosophy is uh, at least for me it was a way of um, making sense of the anxiety i was feeling and giving it a voice, giving it a name and giving it a shape. And um, when I was, you know, 20, in my late 20s, when I started teaching, that's what I thought I would do. That's why I wanted to teach philosophy because it wasn't just me. There were lots of people in that situation. And and in, to, for people in that situation, reading whoever it might be, Plato's dialogues or, or Boethius can be fantastically liberating and empowering. And um, that's um, that's what we're meant to be doing, I think. And, and it, that is not an that's not an answer. That is that, but it gives you a way of exploring the question, a way of a way of thinking it through. And that's uh, that's enough for me. And so philosophy, I think, does that powerfully. So therefore, the pandemic, I think, has been oddly very good for philosophy. Then the question now is really: Are the effects? Uh, is it, is this a temporary blip? Is this just a you know a road bump in the normal you know conduct of life, and we'll all go back to how it was before, or have things really changed? And I'd like to think that they've changed, but I'm not sure that they have. But I'd like to think that they've changed because if we just go back to the the forms of amnesia and uh, that we were practicing before, then I think we're going to be in big trouble. That to say that, I mean, the pandemic is throwing up all sorts of weird social and political phenomena which need to be really you know thought through i mean you know the fact that we're able to or we're willing to kind of separate populations into vaxxers and anti-vaxxers and you know stuff like that which is pretty dramatic so um so i think two cheers for the pandemic uh when it comes to philosophy (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much professor simon critchie for your time i absolutely enjoyed this conversation about your book Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me and uh, thank you for taking the time as well.